Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 292 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 26 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who likes his beer warm and his revenge cold, Chris Faroche. Hey, Chris. Hello, Robin. So is that beer you're drinking cold or super cold or frozen? <laughs> it, I am drinking it at the correct temperature. Is this There was this uh, thing I was listening to, this YouTube channel, uh, about this German girl who lives in the U.S., and she was talking about how the Americans don't like cold, don't like warmer, you know, cooler beer, but cold, cold beer because it doesn't taste very good. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe in Ohio, but Americans have a lot of great beer. We just don't want it to taste like warm milk. I don't understand. Like, why, why would you want a cold beverage so warm? What is with Europe? So I think the, to be serious for a second, it is a bit of a misconception that we like warm beer. Um, so typically a lot of the beer is served at cellar temperature. So it's, it's certainly cooler, um, but it's certainly not super chilled. I, I think there's, yeah, but I mean, you know what else is technically supposed to be served at cellar temperature? Red wine. That's, that's the official temperature of red wine, cellar temperature. And white wine is supposed to be chilled beneath that, right? So... Mm-hmm. Why, why would you want your beer like you'd want your red wine? So you can taste it. So you get all the flavor, mm. all the character okay. of the well. drink. <laughs> if you're drinking super hoppy beer, you can certainly get away with cooling it more than more than typical, I would say, suggest. But I, my experience of the more mainstream American beers, um, I would just suggest why bother drinking it at any temperature, honestly. But now with, <laughs> now with all the great craft beers we have in the U.S., especially in Michigan with Bells and Founders and, and so on and so forth. Um, and Shorts, let's not they, forget my oh, personal yeah. favorite. Yep. Yeah, I love, it. I love a Shorts beer, a Hoomalupa. So, um, yeah, I mean, quite frankly, any temperature works. Yes, fair enough. Well, uh, I feel like we may just be drifting the tiniest bit here. Um, it is Tuesday evening, July 6th. Chris and I just celebrated uh, the 4th of July. And we are going to talk about, now that that's done, we are going to talk about the Austrian Grand Prix, which is totally not the Styrian Grand Prix, as well as the IndyCar race that took place at Mid-Ohio on the 4th of July. And I have my interview, it, I did put it together, I interviewed Rob Holland, who um, competed in the Pikes Peak Hill climb at the end of June. So we had a nice little chat about that. But... Um, before we start on any of that, we are actually going to talk about an article that Chris wrote, not me, Christopher wrote, on the end of Mercedes' dominance as we know it. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Uh, well, I think we're all a little surprised how the 2021 season's unfurling, right? Most people expected Mercedes to carry on at, with under the current regulations and rule configuration, uh, their dominance. Uh, you know, the engine formula hadn't changed. Uh, the cars were largely carried over from last season. Uh, they had a big uh, uh, advantage last year. Um, so the expectation was they would probably chalk up another couple of championships drivers and constructors this year um, and um, it doesn't really look like that uh, is that likely anymore uh, especially after the Austrian Grand Prix result and so just exploring some of the some of the mitigating factors for that 
So this is a story that was posted right on our website, funwithcars.com, and it in the the first four words of the title are end of an era, then a question mark, and that was a very apropos title, in my opinion. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into this, and Chris touches on a lot of great points, but I think if you were to think about the two big hitters, it's the simultaneous, interesting, subtle change of rules. Like, at first glance, you'd think, well, it's the same chassis it's not there's not as much change as there would be normally so that would help mercedes but the changes in the rules and the high rake versus low rate cars and then coupled with the new budget constraints that was kind of a double whammy on mercedes and they're and they're having to adapt to um, a different a definitely different and less friendly set of rules I, i that to me seemed like the biggest single hit what would you say um, I, I think I think that is probably the biggest factors, but we touch on other elements. The fact that they do need to focus on the rule changes for next year and, and seemingly have elected to switch most of their engineering resources onto next year's car, uh, maybe earlier than other teams, given that it's such a, a significant change for next year. And then, of course, we have to credit Red Bull and Max Verstappen for you know the efforts they're making and the, and the for closing the gap, taking advantage of the the rule change and, and their high rake car seemingly coming into its own this season and delivering on that promise. I mean, you have to give Honda in particular a lot, a huge credit. I mean, they were the laughing stock of the sport a few years ago, and it appears they have now developed the strongest engine of the hybrid era, which is a, a, an incredible achievement um, and seems to be the bedrock of uh, Max's title run this year. Yeah, I I think those are excellent points. I think the article in general is a good read, very fascinating, and it's it's right on the homepage, funwithcars.com, and it will be the top story until this podcast comes out, which means it will be the second from the top story, and I will also include a link to the article in the show notes. So definitely give that a read when you have a moment. I know that... uh, Bernard A. already has. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you for the comment. That was appreciated. And uh, definitely, it's worth a few minutes of your time, I would say. Um, the photo is mine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself credit for the photo. Uh, but uh, I, uh, that was a quick... I had to fly. I had to fly to London, drive up to Brackley, take that photo, and come back. So that, that was, that was <laughs> time-consuming, I have to say. Anyway, the, uh, the Austrian Grand Prix. Uh, that was uh, very different than the Styrian Grand Prix. I mean, just like completely the other side of the alphabet when you think about <laughs> Austria versus Styria. And uh, I was expecting drastically different results than what we had at the Styrian Grand Prix, and I was disappointed. Uh, Max Verstappen won again. Botas was second again. Um, it just... Uh, uh, the the fact that so we'll be serious for a moment. The fact that it was the same track, but the temperature difference didn't seem to be that big, after all. Um, and then the tire, they did go one level of compound softer across the board, but that ultimately didn't seem to make a huge difference either. Uh, well, it seemed to help Red Bull and hinder Mercedes. <laughs> so if anything, it, it widened the gap and didn't narrow it. So those of us who may have wished for a closer race didn't get it. But the thousands of Dutch fans uh, in their bright orange shirts were seemingly very happy. Well, it was. 
crazy how comfortable of a race it was for Max Verstappen, especially after you consider that in qualifying, he was decisively unhappy with how the team managed him making his qualifying runs despite taking pole position. I, I mean, you know, Max, we don't really need to talk about him, do we? I mean, what a what a clean weekend. I mean, just perfect. Uh, another triple uh, pole fastest lap win. I mean, it, he's doing everything he needs to do without unduly stressing the car or putting himself at any risk of, of losing a place, right? I mean, it's just perfect. I mean, his so only... the fact that he was upset about the fact that because he, he won pole, but he was mad at the team for making him be in front and, quote-unquote, punching a hole in the air. Well, I mean, he came quite close to losing pole, didn't he? Uh, Lando Norris put in a great effort in the McLaren, which had some upgrades for the weekend. He was uh, less than five hundredths of a second off pole position, and, and Verstappen did give him a toe. So he could have inadvertently have helped Norris to usurp him from pole position, but in the end, he got away with it. Um, and Norris managed to get second, which was a tremendous effort. And, of course, Norris also followed it up with a much stronger race than in the Styrian Grand Prix. So, uh, uh, but, yeah, I mean, sticking on Max for a minute, I think, you know, he's making it look ridiculously easy at the moment. And he, and he looks like uh, he's ready to wrestle uh, the crown off Hamilton's head and, and, uh, and, and would be, uh, you know, a, a worthy champion. But... You know, you just have to look in the sister car to realize it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, Perez, uh, although he had a strong qualifying, made a right pig's ear of the race, um, which I guess we can come on to in more detail. But, you know, it's still possible. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Well, it's still possible. The point is to, you know, to lose the win um, if you make mistakes. And Max isn't making any. He's, he's flaw- His driving is flawless at the moment. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, deserved deserved the win absolutely yeah no max's performance looked much like sebastian vettel's did in the 2010 2011 2012 era in a lot of ways um but none of that was even close to as exciting as lando norris putting in that crazy quick p2 lap and george russell getting to q3 and putting the williams p9 for the starting grid and great, kind, great qualifying. And he did it on the medium compound, which was also remarkable. So he started the race on, on the right tyre. He didn't have to go to the softs like the uh, the Toro Rosso's, uh, the, um, sorry, the Alpha Tauri's went to. So, um, yeah, it was an incredible effort by George. Um, he was well within a second of pole position. So where could Williams be? Maybe they'll be championship contenders next season at this, this rate of progress. <laughs> Right. Well, if if George if George Russell's qualifying continues to improve at the same rate, uh, yes. But uh, I, I just just as you said, he he got through Q two on the medium compound tire, which means he could start the race on the tire, the preferred tire, and then on top of not even just getting into Q three, getting ahead of Lance Stroll in Q three as well. To me, that really put a stamp on it. What? A fantastic effort and all of a sudden just like that uh, getting knocked out of q2 is going to feel like a disappointment going forward yeah i mean to add to that i mean he he, he beat stroll he beat both ferraris uh daniel ricardo 
Fernando Alonso, you know. Uh, so a lot of, of course, uh, poor old Ocon, who, who can't even get out of Q1 these days. So, I mean, he he put it at the, the, the front of the midfield battle almost, really. I mean, not, not that far off... Um, the Mercedes and the Alfa Tauris who were running softer compound tyres. And of course, Sebastian Vettel picked up, a, who was going fairly well himself, picked up a three-place grid penalty for blocking Alonso. And so therefore, George started uh, one place higher in, in eighth. Um, so it looked really promising for him to get points. Um, and uh, he did he did try mighty mighty hard in the race as well. Uh, he did lose out on the first lap. He lost a couple of places at turn two. Um, yeah, I mean, he, I think even a few. It was a bad first lap for him. Yeah, he did struggle. Uh, but I, you, well, on the replays, you couldn't see an obvious mistake. It's just the way the car's concertinaed. I think someone... someone... They do not call him Mr. Sunday. So. <laughs> um, but, I mean, his battle with Alonso was one of the highlights of the Grand Prix for me. Um, oh, really good. Brilliant racing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was nice to see that there was a lot of respect post-race. And I think they uh, had a little hug afterwards. Uh, both seemed to enjoy the battle. Although Alonso even admitted that he felt a little bit bad taking the point no, no, off George. Uh, Chris, you've got that confused. Uh, Alonso was hugging Vettel. Um, <laughs> after, <laughs> after, I mean, Vettel, I, for Saturday, let's just say, Alonso was another one. He was having a fantastic qualifying. His Q1 pace was like P4, P5. And then in in Q2, he ended up getting knocked out because it was between turn 9 and turn 10, I believe, that Alonso caught Vettel, who was kind of like waiting just kind of at the back of the queue, trying to start his qualifying lap. And it was a double whammy for Vettel because... You know, it was ultimately Vettel's fault, but he was just trying to get some space to qualify himself. So he missed the window. The checkered flag fell before he started his lap, and he lost three grid points for blocking Alonso. So Vettel kind of got a, a double whammy there. Yeah, the hugs were between Vettel and Raikkonen post-race. <laughs> <laughs> or was that a wrestling match? It could have been either. I'm not quite sure what was going on. Yeah, Vettel, boy, I you know, he looked to have good... He was having good race performance. And then the last lap, oh, that was frustrating. We could, well, Let's jump to that you, real quick. You can't blame so, it on Vettel. Vettel I, was, that, was that for P10? No. It was maybe it was, just outside the points. It would have been, yeah, they were behind Russell. Whether or not they would have caught Russell on that lap, because I think both Vettel and Raikkonen were on newer tyres than Russell. But, uh, but yeah, so they were battling over 11th. And Kimi, you know, as he's done already this season, just drove into, into Vettel. Maybe he's too old. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you're, I think Vettel might be getting too old. You're right. Just it can't... <laughs> Can't get out of Raikkonen's way. No, I. You know, it. I've been really enjoying seeing Vettel kind of come alive again, and you know, he had a dismal twenty twenty, and so this one was disappointing to see that happening on the last lap because it seemed like the performance was respectable, and Raikkonen as well. They were both having solid races. They were mixing it up, different points of the race depending on tire, where pit stops fell, things like that. But, uh, yeah, sadly for Vettel, he ended up finishing, what was it? I think he was 17th and in, in a DNF, technically. So, so. so let's get off the fence here. So who are you blaming for that? 
I looked like it looked like Raikkonen to me. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So just like he took out his teammate on a straight line, he, he repeated the trick on a fellow competitor <laughs> here, although a slightly right-hander. I mean, he just literally yeah. drove into Vettel's left rear, didn't he? But at the afterwards, didn't Vettel kind of take the blame? That's no, what's been that's on. what's been confusing about it. No, I, d- I must admit, Hopefully I didn't. I'm I, wrong. I didn't. Um, I didn't see uh, their quotes post race, but uh, I think most people were saying the fault was entirely Kimmy's. I don't know how you could interpret okay. it. Okay, good, good, good. Else. Uh, yeah, I, I maybe I just misread something. I hope that's what it was because yeah, it, it, it didn't seem like anything other than Kimmy's fault. I think I think we were missing a trick here. So I've just watched a penalty shootout, and penalties were really the order of the day in the Austrian Grand Prix, weren't they? And I I uh, I've got quite a lot of opinions about them. Um, let's let's talk about the Norris Perez battle. Uh, yeah, penalty, shall we? Definitely. So because what was so bizarre was all of these penalties just about involved Perez. So <laughs> let's <just> start there. <laughs> so, so first of all, let's give Perez some some credit. I thought qualifying third showed what an inspired decision it was to put him in the car for this year. Clearly, you know, I was always a fan of Albon. I wish he'd had more time, really. But ultimately, um, it's the right call to have a more experienced, more capable driver in the second Red Bull. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. And Perez is doing a good job. Um, but... He's I mean, Perez to, has already won a race. Let's not he, forget. He's already won a race, uh, but he's certainly not going to win anymore if he races like he did on Sunday. I mean, I have no idea <laughs> what he was doing. So he gets away from the from the start comfortably in third. So he's done his job already. He's ahead of both Mercedes. He knows that he's probably got a quicker car than Norris. So he doesn't need to do anything crazy, surely. <laughs> and so he decides to hang it on the outside at turn three. And, of course, like any driver would, Norris pushes him wide to hold position, and um, which hasn't been penalised in a lot of races. That type of driving has not been penalised. Uh, in, in France, for example, Norris got pushed wide by Gasly, and it wasn't penalised. Um, well, so, Gasly is a French driver in France, but, well, well, but uh, carry on. But yeah, so anyway, Norris defended in the normal, robust, modern Formula One way. And uh, so Perez obviously ran over the gravel trap uh, and fell down to 10th, which essentially ruined his race. So I just, for me, before we get onto the penalty discussion, why on earth would you be putting the car in that place? Why wouldn't you back out? All he had to do was, was back out a little bit maintain third position and get him on the next lap or five laps later or whatever it did there was who is he think who does he think he's racing that he needs to make that move there because he's clearly not racing his teammate is he he's not really going for the championship he's helping his team win the constructors championship that's his job and to get another contract for next year so i have no idea why he's trying to hang tough on the outside with norris on the first lap does, does it make any sense to you that part of it I agree with you. Yes, it seemed awfully ambitious, and not, well, ambitious isn't even the right word. Uh, but foolhardy seems foolhardy <laughs> seems too strong. I mean, that's funny. That's where I was going. But uh, it, it was just it, it was impatient. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. And uh, but at the same time, this, what we experienced here, and so uh, there's something that Perez should have picked up on but i'll get to that in a sec for me there were moments in the corner where perez's nose was ahead of norris 
and he was definitely alongside. At once, once a car's alongside, don't you have to give a lane? I mean, in in American racing, you'd have to you'd have to give that outside car a lane. You couldn't just push him wide like that. And clearly, the guardians of the rules. This Grand Prix, Derek Warwick and the others. He was the guest driver that was part of it. They would agreed with that more American point of view that if the if the outside car's alongside, he gets a lane. And so you seem to definitely be taking the more classical European approach, which I am still completely confused by, because it wasn't like it wasn't like Perez had his nose in front of Norris's rear axle. Perez was right alongside. I don't think he was quite as far alongside as you may think he was. Certainly at the exit of the corner, Norris is ahead. And no, he's not a car length ahead, but he's, his front axle is definitely ahead of uh, Perez's front axle. I, but and at, he, and at he, the and apex, they were right next to each other. They could have given each other a high five. So here's the thing. Should the rules change depending on the nature of the track. So if you have a wall on the outside of the corner or if you have a gravel trap or if you have tarmac runoff, should the rule be the same or different? It should be the same. I agree with you. But yet that's not how the rules are being applied, are they? So the number of times I've seen someone... I mean, if you think about uh, Hockenheim Ring is a classic. The number of passing maneuvers that get done at that one tight corner um, of the of the shortened Hockenheim ring where the classic move is to go down the inside and then push the driver literally off the track and over the curbing and take the corner away from them I've seen it done dozens of times at that particular circuit but it happens at many others and it's accepted it's accepted by all the drivers so then it makes sense to me that Norris would try the same thing in Austria the only difference is there's a gravel trap, not a not a tarmac runoff. Now, I personally agree with you. I think the rule should be that you should give a car's width. But yet we saw right at Imola uh, where uh, Max Verstappen pushed uh, Hamilton over the curbing. That that's not been the case. That's not been followed all season long. And yet suddenly we start applying that rule here in Austria. It, they just need to be consistent. I mean, the only thing I will say about the stewards in Austria was that they were at least consistent during the race. Yes. But consistency and from race to race is sorely lacking. They either need to say, you've got to leave a car's width or you don't. But pick, a, pick one and, and stick to it. So, so here we're, we're starting to get more aligned. So first of all, um, for all the Europeans that listen to us, uh, Chris, that was part of Chris Roche's uh, citizenship test about giving a lane on the exit. That's part of what makes him an American. Um, second, I agree with you that. Oh, I think I, it, you just. I don't think it's it's a European or American thing. I think it's a modern Formula One versus a, a maybe more classical Formula One. I mean, you go back to the the Clark era. You go back to, to, to well, or the seventies, the louder era uh, in the seventies. Yeah, Stewart, exactly. Yeah. Those guys would give each other a car width on the exit, and then Senna changed, started to change ah, the rules, and then Sh- and then Schumacher <laughs> doubled down, yeah, right? Yeah, Schumacher definitely. Yeah, yeah. And so since then, we've had a slightly different approach, and most modern Formula One drivers follow those rules of of engagement, understandably so, right? And so. Right. I don't think it's a it's a European American thing. I think it's just an evolution of of F one as a sport. 
Well, okay, fair. That That's fair. And it, that makes us closer to agreement than I, I thought we would be. I was ready for a debate here. But the rules, that it, I was surprised because even the announcer, all the Sky Sports guys were like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's just racing. And then the penalties came. But here's what's perplexing. So Perez benefited from that penalty. Well, not really. Not really. Fair enough. But but Norris got hit for that penalty. Perez had to know that Norris got hit for that penalty. Yeah? And then Perez does the exact same thing to Leclerc <laughs> twice. He did it twice. I know. That was fantastic. That was amazing. It's like, dude, you're a bonehead. I mean, what are you doing? That that one was. I, I was shocked that, there, that Christian Horner wasn't on the wasn't on the radio saying, "Just stop, just stop. What are you? Whatever you're doing, stop doing that. Don't don't do. Today is opposite day. Whatever you're thinking, do the opposite of that." So so here's the the question I have, and I, I could look this up, I guess, myself. But I know Norris got two penalty points for for the incident with Perez. But did Perez get four points? Uh, it's, I mean, he he definitely got. He definitely got hit with it twice. He, I mean, he got two five-second five second penalties. It was two yeah. distinct moves. Right. Perhaps so. I mean, I think the second move he pulled on Charles was even more dubious, wasn't it? I mean, that was... So you're basically... What is that? Turn five, six, or six, seven? I, I, I thought it was four. I thought I thought it was the exit of four. Well, no, okay, maybe it's the maybe it's four or five then. So you've gone okay, through the five. sweep yeah, yeah. you've gone yeah, through yeah. the sweeper and then you've got the double left, right? And he really sh- should have given Leclerc space. I mean, I think it's it's the the, the incident with the first incident with Leclerc for him and the and the uh, Norris uh, Perez incident on on that exit is more understandable because you're obviously trying to get the power down, you run you, you're running wide, but that that left-hander you really should be giving space there when there's a car alongside. That makes no sense to me at all why he, why he ran wide, other than he knew he was going to lose the place and, and did everything to keep it and, and would rather take the penalty. I mean, ultimately, it benefited him, right? He, he finished higher than Charles. He got sixth instead of eighth, even with the double five-second penalties. Yeah, it's true. I mean, but, and that it's a perplexing thing. It gets back to, we had this conversation a few podcasts ago about if you qualify and your time is there and then you cause a red flag, yeah. should your time stand? And, you know, so Perez got penalized, but Leclerc got penalized that much more just by having to go through the runoff and because it was very close racing in that mid-pack. So, you know, in terms of in terms of space on the road, there wasn't that much between 6th and 10th. You know, so yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a great battle that midfield battle, including Daniel Ricciardo and and obviously Carlos Sainz joined it. I just for, for the life of me, I don't understand why Perez wants to get involved in it, and he certainly had a car quick enough uh, to not be involved in it whatsoever. So I think he needs to have a little bit of self reflection and and think a little harder about what he should be doing in a top in a top chassis. Um, yeah, but here I'm going to push back on you this a little bit. I I, I I agree with you at the surface level, but I think it is time for Helmut Marco to retire and get the F out because it's the pressure that he puts on all his drivers. So he treats Max Verstappen <laughs> like a god, 
and he bows before him and you know he does you know he has a little he has an idol and he has a little seance that he does for max every day and all this kind of nonsense and then everyone else he just pounds them to the ground like expecting results and helmet Mar- helmet marco puts pressure on the drivers that do no good it obviously clearly does no good i blame all of this on helmet well um in general, I would agree with that statement. He does put colossal pressure on all the junior drivers. But I thought Red Bull had come out and said that Perez was exceeding their expectations for this season and that he was ahead of where they, they thought he would be. And obviously winning the race uh, is ideal. And I'm sure after qualifying, they would have been delighted. Um, you know, And at the end of the day, they've got a healthy championship lead at 40, what, 44 points. So it's not a disaster that he didn't get uh, third or second in the race, is it? But, but I, I'm not sure Helmet really is turning the screw on Perez. I just, I think he just needs to. I think Perez himself just needs to calm down a little bit. He just needs to realize he's getting the job done. Stay. I mean, usually he's such an unflappable racer, isn't he? I mean, this yeah. is the guy who's known for keeping his tires alive. But that's exactly my point, Chris, is that he's, he's, his reputation is unflappable, and he's been very flappable. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is the most flappable I've seen him since he was at McLaren. I, I feel like the last time I saw Perez performance like this was when Perez was at McLaren, and I think that was what twenty fourteen or some twenty thirteen even. Yeah. You know? So what? It's. It, I think it's an internal pressure, though. I think he realizes he's in a championship winning car, and I think like most people, and certainly F one drivers, he he actually believes he's the quickest out there, <laughs> um, and probably thinks he should be matching Max. And we all know that that's absurd, but maybe he doesn't. So maybe he's overdriving. I don't know. It's weird. I I agree with that, except that I think it's internal because Helmut Marco implanted a microchip in his head, and, <laughs> and 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 it's internal in the sense that Helmut Marco like says things to him in the middle of the race that makes him go crazy. Uh, yeah, I listen. I was all ready to support him, and then until he started doing the exact same thing that was done to him to Leclerc or Leclerc. I, so. Real quick aside for that. So I've been catching up with um, Drive to Survive, the Netflix series. And I saw Charles Leclerc pronounce his own name as Leclerc. He had the C at the end. And he pronounced it that way. And I didn't know if he was trying to give it a more American pronunciation because he was on Netflix. or How do you actually pronounce his name? Because the only time I've heard him say his own name, he said Leclerc. Yeah, you hear a lot of different pronunciations even with his first name charles and charles so oh, that's true good point good point let's call him charlie and be done with it all right so this is we'll call him big chuck <laughs> we'll take it we'll take the we'll take the grosjean approach and we'll just he's just big chuck now yeah I, I i do say i love his commitment you know ferrari qualified outside the top 10 and he was racing uh you know for what best best case scenario fifth place but he's still fully on it do you think his reputation is starting to slide? Because Carlos is slowly doing a number on him, isn't he? I mean, there's now, uh, what have we got? Two points between him and the Drivers' Championship. Yeah, it's tight. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, like, clearly, of all the teammates, the new te- teammates for 2021, Carlos is definitely the one that's doing the best, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he, and he's doing it by stealth. 
But people are going to, I think, sit up and take notice as the season wears on if he continues this. Because, you know, Charles is supposed to be, you know, one of the one of the big three, right? You've got, obviously, Hamilton, Verstappen, and Charles is the the third driver mentioned because of his heroics in the Ferrari for the last two seasons. Although, and more and more, I think Norris is putting himself in that conversation. Yeah, let's come on to that in a second, but I, I agree with that statement. But those were the three that are oft mentioned as the, the best in, in the sport at the moment. And, you know, and poor old Carlos gets a short shrift. People forget that he ran Max... Very close when they were both at Toro Rosso. I do not forget that. I, no, I do don't not either. That. Yeah, and he did very well against Norris in McLaren um, last. Well, over the two seasons they were together, you know, and and now he's at Ferrari and he's doing a sterling job. So I think he is definitely one of the most underrated drivers, uh, and and that's probably a, a really big miscalculation because clearly he's very very talented. Well, and Carlos, I I think he has a maturity that few of the other drivers can match. That's what I've noticed is, is a real maturity and intelligence to think through. Maybe it's a Spanish thing because I see that in Alonso sometimes as well. Like just the, the strategy, thinking through the race. I think you forget Alonso's early years, but go well, on. Well, let's yeah. He's mature now because he's old. (laughs) Listen, listen. It's convenient to forget the early years to make my point. So I'm going to continue to do that. The point is, my point is, Carlos is 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 not doing it through sheer pace and wow moments, but he's doing it through consistency and not making any crazy. There's been a lot of. Uh, there's been a lot of moments in qualifying where he didn't get the last tenth out of the car, and that cost him, like getting into Q3 or not, those types of things. And yet, in the race, he keeps his head down and commits. I mean, he keeps his head down and stays consistent. I mean, it let's you know, it was Carlos that was running against Gasly in P2 at the Italian Grand Prix last year. You know, Carlos, just like you said earlier, he's got this stealth performance. He kind of flies under the radar. Actually, I'll tell you who Carlos reminds me of. The way Carlos runs, Scott Dixon. He's always there maximizing. Obviously, different racing series I'm talking about. But I thought you were going to say Perez for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No. All right. Yeah, no, Dixon's a better better name to draw out of the hat. Yeah, you? exactly. So, anyway, so... Carlos is right there, and if but when Charles when Charles has his he has his standout performances, he's uh, he's clearly very very good. He's aggressive. He has impressive performances. He was driver of the day at the Styrian Grand Prix, but you know it's inconsistent. And Carlos has much more consistency, much more reliability, and I think that's what you're seeing in the points. The top performances are just just the slightest bit ahead of that consistent performances 62 points versus 60 in the standings yeah it's 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 set up for a really interesting um you know next dozen or so races between them to see who comes out on top because right now it's really hard to call um now one that's not so hard to call is the inter team battle at mclaren uh i mean i I give daniel ricardo a lot of credit He, he put in a good shift on sunday and managed to get seventh, but dear lord, qualifying thirteenth when your teammate is almost on pole, 
I mean, how much more of this can he take? People are starting now to, to su- suggest that we need to reevaluate Norris, as you were mentioning earlier, or yeah. or Ricardo. One of the two, because right now it doesn't compute, does it? No, it's not Ricardo. I, I refuse to do that. I think, I, I think here's. I'll tell you my honest opinion. I think that in some dark alley, sometime late at night, he put down his gaming set. You know, he does these all night gaming sessions. He put that down and went to a dark alley and made a deal with the devil because Jesus, I don't know where this. I mean, it's just insane because he's got a highly rated driver as a teammate, and he's he's that his performances are clearly above where McLaren really is, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, ahead of both Mercedes and fighting with them in the race. Exactly. Stunning. Exactly. Stunning. With the Mercedes with the Mercedes power unit doing yeah. help. Yeah. No, it, it's it's unheard of where that performance is coming from. And this is the type of thing where they'll lose the Mercedes power unit if they keep it up, right? So um that's going to be a McLaren Renault again awfully quickly if things keep going this way. Yeah, uh, you know, it was interesting to see uh between the two Red Bull Ring races, how much stronger McLaren was in the race in, in the second one than the first. I mean, they he dropped off quite precipitously in, in the Styrian Grand Prix, and there was a big old gulf between him and, and the uh, the top two teams by the end of the race. But in this, in this, I mean, he was less than, what was he, less than five seconds behind Botas. So if he yeah, hadn't yeah. got... Not much, he, not much more than two seconds. Behind. Yeah, so if he hadn't got the penalty, he'd have got second place, and he would have beaten both cars. Now, well, Hamilton... Theoretically, theoretically. Okay, he did, but... He served, he served that penalty in his pit stop, so... That, well, okay, you're right. Maybe Botas had more pace and could have held him at bay, but, but certainly... Um, I'm, I'm just was, saying we was, don't know how things would have unfolded had he been one place or the uh, other. Yeah, That's no, all. No, Fair comment. Um, but he was certainly keeping Botas honest, wasn't he? And um, Hamilton, after damaging his car around lap, what, 28, 29, you know, 29, was well yeah. off. Yeah, it was well off the pace of both of those two. Um, I mean, it brings on another point, but let's finish on the Norris subject. I mean, I just, uh, you know, so his race pace was really strong. And McLaren brought upgrades between the two uh, Red Bull races. And clearly they worked. So, you know, this is the interesting aspect of the season. You've got some teams that are still throwing a lot of development at these 21 cars. And Mercedes are not. And it's going to change the order if, if they're not careful. I mean, they've slipped from being the quickest team to second quickest. And you could argue they were on the verge of third quickest here. A stunning, stunning state of affairs. Who would have thought that? Certainly not me at the start of the season. So, uh, but Norris is is making hay with it. He's he's doing a sterling job and and was uh, was feisty all weekend. And he's certainly getting people to reevaluate his, him in the Formula One driver pecking order, isn't he? Well, he, and he's cra- he's fourth in the constructors' championships. Oh, he championship, is some- three points behind Sergio Perez. He's, he's fourth in the nine drivers' championship. <laughs> nine points ahead of Botas, and that's insane. Yeah. And well, and, then, and McLaren are solidly third in the in the constructors now. Well, and oh. the top, and and the top non Red Bull or, or Mercedes guys, other than uh, other than Norris, is Charles Leclerc with sixty two points. So he's got a forty two point. No, sorry, sorry, a uh, a thirty nine point edge on the top 
on the top Ferrari driver. That's telling. That's very telling. Yeah, no, I mean, he's uh, he's getting it done, and and you're right. He's he's got into top uh, best of the rest, and and certainly McLaren are winning the battle against Ferrari for third place in the constructors, mainly off the back of his efforts. So it's it's uh, he's proving to uh, to be strong and having a good season. Um, I guess I I was really mystified, and this may be a controversial statement, but you know, call me old fashioned, but there's a, there's two drivers in the championship battle. Uh, one of them is Lewis Hamilton, who was in a damaged car in second place. And rather to my astonishment, Mercedes decided to let uh, to order him to let Bottas pass. Uh, and then obviously he then got passed by Norris. Now, an alternative state of affairs might have been Bottas's job as a wingman to try and hold Norris back. And they get Hamilton uh, to the finish in second. Uh, you know... I, it, it mystified me why they didn't try that for longer. And, and they basically threw in the towel and pitted Hamilton again. Did you, you understand that? Because to me, um, he is, he's lost, what, six points there automatically before they've even, even fought for them. They just basically said, oh, all right, then we'll just, uh, we'll just take fourth. Yes, I, I, I agree. I agree with, except that Mercedes, since their inception, since buying the team from Honda they had the strategy of we don't have a number one driver we let them race and this was a this was just a very clear very black and white circumstance where for this race doesn't matter the reason for this race botas was clearly quicker so if if lewis loses the championship by five points at the end of the year will we all go mercedes you know you did it the right way or will we all go, <laughs> you idiots, you should have done what every other team since you know the 1950s has done, which is you support your lead driver so he wins the championship. Well, I mean, I, who cares other than Botas? Nobody else cares. They want to see a close driver's championship, don't they? A good why fight. are you so bent on hurting Botas's feelings? I mean, he's being, he's being lined up as a good Williams number one driver. And so, therefore... Um, I think. I mean, no, let, let's play this scenario out a little bit more. So let's say Norris gets past both of them, and uh, it's, you could still have Hamilton finish third. You still get three extra points, maybe not six. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fair point. Obviously, in the drivers' championship, Hamilton's clearly well ahead. Uh, I, I, I fully respect well, that. I understand what I'm saying is slightly controversial. Look, when Mercedes were dominant and only a Mercedes was ever going to win, then, of course, you've got to let your drivers race because otherwise the championship would be, a, would be a torrid affair, right? It would just be so dull. So when you are dominating the sport, you have to let your drivers race. But as we all know, when you're not dominating the sport and you're in a, you know, a really pitch battle... You need, you need to sort of modify that approach a little bit, don't you? And certainly we know who the number one driver is at Red Bull. And I know that Christian Horner isn't, isn't uh, doing anything to prevent Max Verstappen from maximizing his points haul at every race. And if that means asking Perez to park by the side of the road and have a hot dog while uh, Verstappen unlaps himself or whatever the case may be, that's, what, that's the radio call he'll get. And he won't apologize to anyone. He's trying to well, win a championship. And the sad part was, is that Hamilton did, the, did get the second set of tires, went out and set 
a fast lap and then just got clobbered. That fastest lap got clobbered by Verstappen. I mean, that was that was salt in the wound right there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, he, he, that part was hard to argue with. Well, the, the, the damage to the car was costing him over half a second a lap. So he was never going to have fastest lap if any of the other top runners stopped and changed tires again, was he? So, But let's talk about that. I mean, does he not bear the responsibility for damaging the car in the first place? Uh, look, that is a perfectly valid point. And the amazing thing is, I know he's done it before. I can't remember exactly which Austrian Grand Prix it was. But I know he has damaged the, the you know the curbing is is pretty rough at, at uh, the Red Bull Ring, and we've had at least two races I can think of where he's managed to damage damage the car over the curbs, and I think it was Turn One previously too. So, yeah, I mean he made his own bed. I'm not disputing that. What I'm saying is Mercedes, for whatever reason, just haven't woken up to the new reality. They don't. <laughs> they're not dominating this year. They are in real danger of losing the, both championships at this rate. Um, and they either throw in the towel and focus on next year or they or they they change their mindset and fight for it. And, I, 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 you know, and at the end of the day, I I'm quite happy to see Max and Red Bull win the championship if they if they earn it. But I want to see them have to fight for it. I don't want to see Mercedes roll over and. And, and just give up on oh, well, such an amazing run. Seven championships and eighth would be incredible. Why would you just throw in the towel and not, not fight to the death? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't argue with that sentiment. Uh, I, I understand where you're coming from. It's hard to argue with that specific point. I mean, plus we were having, I mean, it was a great championship battle. And, to, you know, obviously it got messed up a little bit in Monaco because Mercedes just wasn't competitive and Baku again. But well, I think we all... Not and everything else, yeah. Yeah, but I think then we all hoped that it would resume these close Verstappen-Hamilton fights that were really, really intriguing and a lot of fun to watch. I don't want to see domination by one driver and one team. Really, I mean, if it has to happen, it has to happen. But ultimately, you know, I think we all prefer close racing at the front as well as down the field. Um, I know there's a lot of people who are probably so bored with the Hamilton Mercedes roadshow, they just want any other winner. And I can understand that viewpoint. But ultimately, it was a really fun battle. And it seems a shame that it might be over already. If you want to watch close racing at the front, in addition to the mid-pack, maybe you should just spend more time watching IndyCar because... We got we got another great great race this time at Mid Ohio. It was uh, same day as the Formula One race later in the day, Fourth of July, and it was a fantastic race. And this time around, the Penske Penske transmission, the Penske car held up, and it was uh, Joseph Newgarden that won that race. Lights to flag, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And and Marcus Ericsson, he was right there. Marcus Ericsson finished. Uh, finished second. Alex Pillow, Pillow, Pillow. He finished third. Scott Dixon fourth. Rossi fifth. And uh, down the order, uh, Romain Grosjean, um, uh, Roman Grosjean, um, finished seventh. Since I interviewed him, I have to, I have to share his results. Uh, but you know, I've been impressed with how Marcus Ericsson has found some real pace and uh, starting to turn up the wick a bit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he was really pushing um, Newgarden right to the end, wasn't he? And he was, what, looked like he could get a run on him in the last couple of corners, but never quite they got finished, close enough. He finished less than a second behind uh, mm -hmm. Newgarden at the end of the race. 
Yeah, I agree with you. It's He's come alive, hasn't he? Uh, he was sort of under the radar for a couple of seasons in IndyCar, but now he's he's really seems to have found his uh, his mojo and he's he's coming along strong which is great I mean obviously driving a Ganassi car you would expect him to be competitive but uh, but yeah that's that's awesome I, I what did you make of the power Dixon crash <laughs> I thought that was some good racing until they hit each other yeah I, I power I, I mean honestly Will Power I think is just he does some weird things sometimes and you know, he's clearly, he's still very quick. But he, there's times when he's just like old man behind that wheel. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I so obviously I thought it was Will Power's mistake. I could be wrong, but uh, that's what it looked like to me. And uh, it seemed unfortunate that the two had to complicate each other's races that way. I guess I didn't see it quite so clearly as a power fully at fault for that I mean he certainly came off worse didn't he spinning and then getting hit by Ed Jones um, I mean that right. and Ed Jones been... obviously didn't fare well either <laughs> I mean, coming over the brow face with a cloud of tyre smoke I mean it's a total lottery isn't it exactly. I mean what a Absolutely nightmare right. scenario yeah. Um, but yeah I mean I thought it had been you know really good side by side action up until that point I thought it was a shame that they ended up collecting each other honestly because it, it had been very entertaining until that moment and then I also felt a little bit bad for, for Herter uh, with his uh, pit stop disaster dropping him down the order oh, he'd I been mean, running that very was, strong that was very much it was obviously not the same because it was a fuel issue but it, that was very akin to what happened to Botas where everything seemed fine and then there was an issue and then all of a sudden Pit stop was 10 seconds, then 15, then 20, then 25. And, you know, he was eventually released. He did get fuel, but, yeah, that really... Because, you know, uh, Colton Herta has been running in the front very consistently, but his standings don't show it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah, he hasn't had too much luck, has he? I mean, talking of the championship standings, I mean, Palo is quietly running away with it, isn't he? I mean, he's more than a race win ahead of Dixon now, who's in the third well, place. Well, no, he's not more than... So, you get... Fi- you, 50 you get, points for a win, right? Right, and he's uh, 39 ahead. No, he's not. He's, um, he is 56. Uh, so, th- I've got 384 for Palo, Dixon 328. Oh, I'm sorry. I, okay, ahead of Dixon, but yeah, Pato Awards in second with 325. Yeah, well, absolutely. But I, I did highlight the reigning champion as the person he was a race winner. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're, you're 100% right about that. Yes, he is getting, he's pulling, he's nudging ahead of Dixon, absolutely. You know, I mean, Award has been strong and finished, what, he finished eighth. But to me, it's Pelo that is just always seemingly in the top five. Which is which is the way to win a championship in IndyCar? You know, there's co- constant accumulation of points, and Dixon, you know, has always been very good at doing that. Um, but he finished behind him again. I mean, he finished fourth and Pelo third, so he, you know, he just the gap widened marginally. So, I think that consistency, if he can keep it up for the rest of the year, is what's going to earn him the championship. But you're right, Award has shown pace, and he's won two races this year, and he's still very much in the hunt. But I, I think it may be more of a Dixon coming on strong later on the year that uh, that, that Polo has to fear. Yeah, so Dixon has been there. The one that's been confusing me more than more than Dixon has been Rossi because Rossi had been incredibly strong the last couple of seasons 
But this season, he just hasn't been able to put it together, and he's kind of been outclassed by Colton Herta, frankly. So that's been the more surprising one for me. Rossi's still there. He's fifth in the championship right now. But he's not, he's not threatening to win races like he used to. Uh, would he finish fifth in, in mid-Ohio? But I agree with you. He's been a little bit anonymous this season compared to prior years. So what did Jimmy do this weekend? Yeah, Jimmy Johnson ended up finishing 22nd. He, he, the car was running. He did finish. So that's, that's something. Did he uh, spin? He did not, uh, probably. I mean, probably. I, to be honest with you, so I didn't, I didn't watch the entire race from green flag to checkered, but um, he, didn't, he never showed up as a highlight one way or the other. So he kind of had a vanilla towards the back kind of race. And in a way, I suppose that's progress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just keep your nose clean out of, uh, without any major errors. And then you can start building performance, right? Exactly right. So uh, in the last podcast, I mentioned that uh, Pikes Peak Hill Climb had recently happened. Well, I was able to schedule something. Rob Holland and I did have a conversation about Pikes Peak. We had a great conversation. Rob is not only an extremely quick race car driver and hill climber, he's also a very intelligent, very um, engaging hill climber and race car driver. So let's listen to that conversation now. All right. I am very happy to be joined by... Pikes Peak veteran, Rob Holland. And Rob, I want to say that I learned something new about you. I always thought that Rob Holland was restricted. But then I watched your video of uh, your climb up Pikes Peak for this year, and it turns out you're unrestricted. That's great am, news, man. Congratulations. I am officially unrestricted. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually funny. I picked the, that name for the YouTube channel because, uh, you know, of all the stuff we were, I was doing over in Germany at the Nürburgring, and I always thought that, you know, it was always cool that when you would see the, the sign on the road with the circle and the three lines through it, that that meant it was an unrestricted highway. And um, and then and then kind of as a, as a second bit with, um, you know, how uh, race cars are restricted, and when you pull the restrictor, they're much faster. So I kind of was like, yeah, unrestricted. That's a cool title for a YouTube channel. And so I am Rob Holland, unrestricted. It's clever. It's layered. And I think that suits you as a person quite well, as you are also are you, layered. You're and layered clever. and clever. <laughs> right on. Glad, glad to know that those are two of my good traits. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe the only two. I mean, uh, let's... Uh... Well, probably. <laughs> no, so... All right. uh, so you um, you have a long storied racing career with a lot of cool stuff. You've been doing some super cool stuff with Mustangs this year in um, the SRO series here in the United States. But right now I wanted to talk about your uh, most recent run up Pikes Peak, which was just a few days ago in a, and I'm going to throw out numbers here and then you correct me, like a 550 horsepower Audi S3, somewhere in there. Yep, and that is how did correct. That go? Uh, it was interesting. I mean, obviously, Pikes Peak is always cool. It's always good fun. I always love doing it every year. It's it's one of my favorite events. But the one thing that you always have to deal with at Pikes Peak is the weather. And unfortunately, this year, it decided to throw another curveball at us uh, and dump a bunch of snow at the top of the mountain, basically the night before the race. Like, it had been beautiful all the way, like, literally leading up to the race. Night before, it dumped a bunch of snow. They were only able to get... Uh, the race cleared to run up to Devil's Playground, which is about three-fourths of the way. 
Oh, I was going to guess two thirds. Okay, that's good to know that I was not too far out of whack there. Yeah. So basically, they in timing and scoring, they have four sectors. We were able to run three of them. So got it. Um, you know, and I and I, I've said this before. I've got to give big kudos to to Megan and all of her crew at Pikes Peak because, you know, the you think about this big international race. You've got sixty some odd cars. You've got international press, photographers, spectators, everything. And they made the the game time decision to move the finish line down to to the to the uh, to Devil's Playground. And and they were able to pull it off, and they went went off without a hitch. I don't know too many major races in the world that can make a change like that on the fly and, and do it successfully. So, you know, as disappointed as we all were not to be able to run to the top, you got to give that you know Megan and the crew a huge amount of uh, of credit for being able to pull it off. So, you know, because the, because the option is that we don't race at all, and none of us right. wanted that. Right. So. Exactly. But yeah, so I mean, you know, if you look at that, uh, it, it, all things considered, we actually ran pretty well. Um, unfortunately, we had some more weather that decided to move in. So not only did we get uh, not be able to run all the way to the top, but the middle of our run was was completely the track was completely wet. So oh, I it, noticed. I watched your video and I saw it, <laughs> and I saw I saw your big moment uh, where you had to correct and then just hold and hold, and it's like you're running out of road, dude. And uh, it, you were able to collect it just in time. So that that part was good. But yeah, the, the weather is always a question mark, isn't it? Yeah, that 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 was a bit sketch. That was probably the biggest moment I've ever had at Pikes Peak, you know. And that's that's what you get when you're when you're running a car flat out. Uh, is, is that you? You know, it, it's th there is no backing down. Like you know, when, when you run Pikes Peak, your mindset is is you're running ten tenths, and there's you know you've got to just push. And and we you know the the bottom section went really well for us, and then we got into the section after picnic ground where the where the water really started to pick up, and you know you're looking for all the dry patches and doing all these things that it's funny I'm, I'm used to doing on a regular racetrack but we really haven't had to deal so much with pike's peak because pike's peak is either like it's either dry or it's wet and we've i've never had that kind of in-between thing so right. that was a damp track as it were it was damp but with with dry patches here and there so you kept yeah. on like looking for the dry patches but then also too the the, the water was cooling down our tires which you know we really try ah. to do a good job yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. keeping them hot and and you know so so we were losing tire temperature and we had a damp track and so with all these things getting thrown at me but it, it, it kind of made for a different challenge at pike's peak and um so we 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 actually were a little bit slow in the second sector i think comparable to everybody else that ran around us and then we had a, a blazing third sector um, which is all the dramatic shots that's you know going through through uh evo corner and, and just all the big drop-offs and stuff and we were six seconds quicker than we were last year uh with the car through that so, section oh through that section great. yeah so between the two sections that we had that were dry the first and the third sector um we were a total of eight seconds quicker um, which, which obviously had we run that last year, we would have had the record by now, but, uh, because we didn't run it until this year, it was, uh, we obviously, you know, and we didn't run to the top, there was no record to be set. But the, the good news is, is that we, we learned a lot from the car and that we know that the car is quick now. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of good takeaways from that. And then now that we've, we've learned all this stuff, we're actually throwing that car away and building a new car for next year. <laughs> well, so. It, it's just a crazy, I, I want to say one more thing about the event, the event in general, though, because people even in Europe might have been hearing about the crazy heat waves that are going on in the northwest part of the country and now in the northeast as well. And here you are talking about how you couldn't run the top of the hill climb because of eight inches of snow. Yeah, and that gives you just 
just the crazy, like we're talking about where, what's the, between nine and a half thousand and 15,000 feet above sea level, roughly 14,100 yeah. and something above sea level that, that this vent is run. And it's kind of its own little microcosm of weather. You can get anything regardless of what the rest of the country is doing. That part's crazy. But then yeah. more specifically to your race car, we're talking about a big front wheel drive, heavily modified race car here. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, I think the first thing to realize is that, you know, 14,000 feet is where the weather happens. Like you are in weather. It's not like <laughs> weather is above you or around you. You right, are in right. the weather. So it's it's actually really bizarre. Like there'll be times where we finish the race and, you know, we've got to wait up for all the rest of the cars to finish and weather will move in. And all of a sudden, like you're, you're like, oh, it's really foggy out. And you're like, well, no, it's not foggy. You're in the middle of a cloud. Like the cloud right. has just come in and it's, <laughs> you're at that level. So, um, you know, we've had everything from, you know, beautiful sunshine to rain to hail to snow. Like it, it literally, I don't think there's a, a single weather pattern or, or weather phenomena that we haven't been in uh, at Pikes Peak. So it's, it's, it's a very, very weird scenario that way. But, and that's, you know, once again, these are the things that you have this experience, like base, this knowledge base that you, you build up on every year when you go to Pikes Peak. You know, when I came in as a rookie, you come in and you go, oh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's a race. It's just like every other race. I bring my car and I do this and I do this and it's all the same things. And like you get there and you realize very, very quickly that it, it's completely not like any other race you've, you've gone to. In fact, um, John Huffman from, uh, from Road and Track Magazine had called me up asking me for some advice and stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, JPH. I yep, think is who we're yep. talking about, right? That is who you're talking about. Yep. Good guy. And, um, you know, he, he rang me up and said, Hey, can you give me, you know, give me some advice on the race, this, that, and the other. And I said, Hey, just expect that it's going to be different than anything you've seen before. And it, like that I saw him on race day and he's like, dude, you were so right. He's like, <laughs> I came in expecting this, that, and the other, and got like something completely different. And, um, well, he's also Mr. California. So yeah, he doesn't leave. He doesn't leave California very much. Right. right. So being in Colorado was different for him. Yeah. That (laughs) is like, wait, this C state isn't like the other C state. Right. (laughs) But it's, it's, it was, it's so cool that things are so different because it it really like to all of us guys that have been doing this for such a long time, you kind of get jaded in, in your racing and you're just like, Oh, this is the same thing I always do. And then you come to Pikes Peak and every year you learn something. It's like, there's not a single year that I've come here that things haven't been different. So there's no way to prepare for it. You just have to be experienced enough to, to handle it. The variety of the weather, the variety of the competition, mm-hmm. I, everything. And then this year was, or it might've been last year as well. You know, So now we're in a period again of no motorcycles where it's just cars. Um, so there's, there's, it's very much a living, breathing thing, this hill climb. And yeah, there's always something new to throw at you and yet you've become one of the most one of the more experienced guys to have ever done it and you've been driving this audi s3 for several events now and it's you're tossing it to the bin fair enough but (laughs) i was watching your video and one thing that i noticed is you're definitely on the limit the ragged edge but it seemed like from just what i heard that you weren't always getting the right gear you wanted to be in or sometimes Sometimes there were difficulties with uh, shifting just like you wanted. Like sometimes you bounced off the limiter. Sometimes you seem to be in a little bit lower gear. Was I just mishearing wheel slip? Was I, 
how did the car feel? Were you having any transmission issues or any other issues? Oh, um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, the first thing is, is that this car is, is built by Blue Water Performance. Um, in Great Denver. guys, by the way. I met them a couple Great years guys. back. Great guys. They, the, the thing though is, is that it is, what they wanted to do was, was create um, like the ultimate street car, um, you know, something that, that their experience and their knowledge base um, could be used to, to make faster. So in that sense, both the engine and the transmission are stock. I mean, they're, they're the base, the base stock engine, the base stock transmission. Now, obviously we've added the bigger Borg Warner turbos, you know, the EFR turbo. Um, we've got a turbo smart anti-lag system, like all of these things that we threw in there. Um, but it's that, not like reinforced connecting rods or some no, 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 bigger no. block or anything no. like that. It's just stock, stock stuff. Exactly. Hardware. Yeah. So, so in that, uh, using the stock DSG box, um, we, we've got fairly good control over it, but it, it's still at the end of the day, kind of this like semi-automatic type of gearbox that doesn't really like to, to shift quickly and, and, you know, all, like exactly when you need it, like, you know, what we have in motorsports, we'll have a sequential transmission that basically, as soon as you pull that paddle, the transmission shifts, like it's, it's very, very quick. The DSG box doesn't do that. So there are times where I struggle with getting into gear. The other thing is that the paddle throw isn't very long. So mm. it's sometimes hard. Like you'll hit it and think that you, you've, you've hit it enough that it'll go in gear and it just hasn't gotten that signal. Um, so there was a couple of times like coming out of Glen Cove, I'd hit the paddle, it didn't shift. And then I bounced off the rev limiter for a bit and then I was able to get it to shift again. And then where I struggle sometimes is getting it to go into first gear coming through the hairpins. It doesn't like that, that you know, two to yeah. one downshift and a and transmission so from the factory would would have that to be a more known issue they don't they don't tend to like first gear when they're moving no i mean it's one of those things that very very rarely do you ever just select first gear like even as an around town gear i mean you're stopping you know coming off a stoplight or you know whatever you'll have first gear and then you, immediately you're right into second gear right away so it's it's not a, a very very crisp shift anyways and then when you're trying to do it you're you know as a front wheel drive car you want to come into the corner like and you, you really want to trail break the car in the problem is is that it's not that, that there's a whole bunch of sensors telling the car that no 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 you can't trail a car in and downshift and get first gear at the same time we'll give you second we're just not going to give you first <laughs> right, so, right. yeah so because of that like and and you need to have first gear coming off of the of the hairpin corner so um so there were a couple of times where i was you know just i wanted to get first gear i had selected first gear and it's like nope you get second and and you can't screw around with it too long because you lose too much time so you come off the corners in second gear and that's that's kind of what it is and it's the it's the the trade-off you make in driving a, a fairly stock car now the upside to that is that that dsg box is like bulletproof that thing is strong as as anything and so the nice thing about that is that you don't have to worry about that gearbox you can go in and you can you can beat the crap out of it and and know that it's going to take it and the top part of pike's peak is is really really bumpy um yeah, and a lot you know, of so switchbacks a lot of shifting a lot of shifting but it's the the circuit has gotten so degraded up there that you know when the you, the car will hit it and then you know get get airborne almost and then it's coming down and putting just like huge loads into the tires and into the axles and then into the gearbox um and you know a lot of sequentials can't handle that but but you know this um you know the dsg box is super solid that way so that's one thing you don't really have to to worry about so much so that's the the upside to to running that those components as well so one other thing that's typical of Pike's Peak is 
you have, you know, we talked about around 550 horsepower, but there's usually, you usually get two horsepower numbers. The number of horse, how much horsepower you have at the start of the rate, at the start of the climb and how much you have at the end. And I'm curious if, if you had to deal with uh, a significant loss of power as you went and was that diminished because you didn't do that last quarter of the climb? Yeah, there's a, it's kind of, it's a little bit of both. Um, so we, yeah, you do lose horsepower all the way up. There's nothing you can do. And that's why we run the size of the turbo that, that we do, you know, cause you want to try to make as much horsepower as you can all the way up. Uh, but, but at the same point in time, when you're running the bigger turbo that creates lag, it takes longer for that, the turbo to spool with fill it with air. And then you've got obviously the intercoolers and all that stuff. So it takes a while to get that pressure going to get the, the car going, which is, you know, why we were running that turbo smart anti-lag system was more about being able to get good throttle response um and that that basically allows us to run like the biggest turbo we can and that that keeps the horsepower somewhat level now the other thing we were trying to do is is that when you're coming off of the hairpin corners with a big turbo with the anti-lag you're getting all of the boosts like right at once and obviously that creates a lot of wheel spin so we were trying to reduce boost in first and second gear until the car actually got going and then we could we were able to raise it and open it up a bit so is as important as horsepower is at pike's peak drivability is more important and that's something i've been working with the blue water guys on because they've, they've done things like um you know the land speed record at bonneville and they've done some drag racing stuff but to get them to understand that look that's that's great when you're full throttle all the time and all you're doing is grabbing gears full throttle that's fine but when you're trying to launch the car off a corner um you know over you know 50 60 times going up pike's peak you need to be able to put that power down reliably and we finally actually managed and it was it's it's you know it's it's something a testament to go to these guys they were working on this car the whole race week and we ended up deciding that we were going to take friday off from running because we normally would run um the optional practice day on friday and we were like look it, it's more important for us to get the drivability of the car better than it is for me to do one more run uh, on the hill and so we uh we took the car we, the, the guys went over to front range airport and spent literally the whole day tuning the car at front range uh and they called me up at like three o'clock in the afternoon and they're like okay we think we've got it and so i drive out to front range airport i get there and like right as i pull up like just monsoon like rain just comes down <laughs> chucking it down so here i am in this like 500 horsepower car with like just huge anti-lag going and and the, and we're on a airport so there's like slick runway type material and and we're like and so i get out and try it and you know the, the great thing about it is is that it works so good that like having a wet surface wasn't an impediment i you know i was able to drive the car still it wasn't like you know lighting up the tires everywhere and i was like that's it We've, we figured it out if i can drive this car on this wet circuit then i'll be fine for the race and then it, it basically rained the next day so it was perfect for for that those scenarios and you know give those guys a huge amount of credit there's just no quit they didn't say you know i was i was complaining about drivability and they were like okay we're going to listen to rob and we're going to get this done and we're going to make the car drivable and then you know they they spent the whole day doing it and we got it done so because this wasn't the full climb up the hill you were in an event you were in a class you did score in that class so how did that go and then how is it counted in terms because you said it, you don't get an overall record even though you would have but so how does how does that go how did you do and how does that get looked at in history 
it's kind of tough because I think it's more of almost like a practice year than anything else because there's no like there's not you can't really compare the time there's no okay you know run to sector three at devil's playground with a slightly red track record like it just doesn't that's not how it works right um right. so so right now it's more of I won't say practice because that's that's the wrong way to put it we're all competitors and we all want to beat the other competitors so uh the, the, we were really good and if you look at our pace compared to the other cars where we we would like to be considered we were actually very quick the the problem was is that in the morning it was dry and in the afternoon it was dry and then for like for whatever reason for like the hour of our like whatever our group ran it was wet uh, like on the middle part of the track so it, it's tough to take away like okay i think we ran a this is a 740 or something like that and so it's tough to like one compare that to anything but it's also tough to like compare it to even the the you know cars that were racing at the same day because the track conditions were different. So, you know, looking at sectors one and sectors three, which were both mainly dry, where we looking at where we were last year, we were quicker and we ended up fifth in the overall class, uh, sorry, the unlimited class and 23rd overall. So uh, it's a little bit back from where we were last year, but if I, if I say, hey, look, you know, the middle sector could have been dry, we would have been, you know, 15 seconds quicker. That would have put us into the top 15, no problem. And that's why wow. we, we think we should have been. And, you know, for a front wheel drive car to be that quick up the mountain, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. That's, that's fantastic. Well, Rob Holland, uh, usually driving a GT4 class Mustang around and uh, winning races, uh, spent a little time racing up a hill. Rob, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, by the way, here's one tip, just a closing thought. Next time, don't cross the double yellow so often, man. That's rude. <laughs> that's what I do up the hill. That's what we got going on. And you don't want to see me drive in real life either because that's my practice. <laughs> <laughs> so, not yeah, really. Not you got really. to watch, watch Rob Holland's video. I will include a link to that in our show notes. And uh, it's already on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash FWCars. It's definitely worth watching. A lot of fun. Super cool uh, perspective using that POV camera that you did. Rob Holland, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Robin. Always appreciate being on your show. Yeah, there's never a bad time to talk with Rob. Um, and Pikes Peak is such a unique and cool event. It's great to get his insights, even though they actually didn't get to go to the top of the mountain this time around um, because there was actually snow. It snowed the night before the event. It So it isn't full. Those times wouldn't count against record times uh, that have been posted in years past. But, you know, always good to hear from him. And it's such a cool hill climb event that it's always good to get some interest in that. So we have a little bit of time um, before the next race because um, Silverstone is uh, middle of July. And mm-hmm. IndyCar, as, as, assuming I'm reading everything correctly, IndyCar isn't racing until August. So we're, we're going to be able to kind of catch up about just the mood of racing in general for the next couple of podcasts, which I'm looking forward to. You can give us some more of your crack analysis on the different teams, Chris. Well, can we pontificate about the uh, sprint race format before we actually get to witness it? Oh, yes. Silverstone is going to be the opener of the qualifying sprint race. That is very, very true. Yes. In fact, that might be a good thing to do is to spend some time thinking about how bloody stupid some of the things Formula One does or bloody brilliant. 
who knows, right? Plus, I'll have some podcasts to promote. I'm sorry. I'll have some videos to promote as well. Speaking of, oh, hey, by the way, I have a new video up. It is of the 2021, wait for it, Porsche 718 Boxster T. This is the uh, Porsche Boxster, but the T uh, means that it is a little bit lower, stiffer suspension. Everything about it is just a little bit more driver-focused, a little bit more in, in just driver-enthusiast-friendly. And it's just a, it's a great, great car to drive, and I had a lot of fun making this video. So I hope that as a result, it's also a bit of fun to watch. And uh, that is my latest video. I just released it um, earlier. It was Tuesday that I released it. So a lot of fun. Chris, I hope you watch it at least three times. Um, I'll certainly try once. All right. Well, well, that's where we'll start. We'll start, we'll start with once. But anyway, that is all for now. I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Oh, Chris, always great to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye.